All right, good morning, church family. If you, have, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and open it with me to 1 Thessalonians, the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you are new to reading the Bible, 1 Thessalonians is found in the New Testament, so the second part of the Bible, and you're going to find it in what I like to call the T section. It's books that all start with T, so it starts with 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. So if you find the T's, go to the beginning of that and you will find 1 Thessalonians. Normally, in our sermon series that we are doing, we will go verse by verse through a book of the Bible, or at least a section of the book of the Bible, but, but this, this fall, really, as a whole, we are doing something a little bit different in this message series that we're calling, We Are Disciple Makers. I say it's a little different because the, every week we're kind of jumping to different places, because I felt like it was really important for our church in the season that we're entering into that we as a whole see a very broad picture of what Jesus meant when he uttered those words to go and make disciples. There's a declaration that I've asked us to say together at the beginning of every service that summarizes each one of our roles in this disciple-making process. And so, uh, Keetra, if you go ahead and put that on the screen, we are going to say it together this morning as we start out. You ready? All right, here we go. I was made for more than watching. I have a difference-making, life-giving, spirit-empowered legacy to leave as I proactively help people move one step closer to Jesus. This is a prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask you to work deeply in me and clearly through me as I pray, proclaim, and persevere in your love. I am a disciple maker. As a child, I would imagine that all of you in this room had some kind of fear. Uh, some kids fear roller coasters. Some kids fear the dark. Some fear broccoli. If you're anything like me, I feared all of the above. I was a very fearful kid. But one of the things that I feared most was swimming. Now, that was a problem because my life was surrounded by water. My family had a pool in our backyard. Uh, we would regularly go to the lake. I would see all these other people swim. And so mentally, I knew that I needed to learn to swim. In fact, as I looked at others, as they swam with joy and they looked like they were having a great time, I desired to want to swim. But every time as I got to the edge of that pool or to the edge of a lake, any body of water, I would look at the water and it would seem too big. It would seem too overwhelming. It would seem too big of a risk. I felt if I jump in, if I'm all in, there's a great chance I'm going to drown. I don't want to learn to swim because I'm fearful of what that would be like. Well, after a while, my parents, after many efforts of trying to get me into our pool, they sent me to the most uh, scary-sounding summer camp possible. They sent me to a place called Swim Ranch. That was not something I wanted to hear. I wanted nothing to do with swimming, but they said, you are going to this place, and for a week, you're going to learn to swim. And so I went hesitantly, but that week I faced my fear of swimming. The counselors that week, the first day, they got me to come and touch the water. Then they helped me to take one step into the water. Then they put me in the shallow end, and eventually they taught me the motions of swimming. They taught me how to float. And wouldn't you know it, by the end of that week, I was swimming. Not only was I swimming, but I had the same, yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that great life accomplishment. Not only was I swimming, but I had joy in it. 
I had the same joy that I had seen other people have when they were swimming when I was too fearful to step into the water because I was fearful that I was going to drown. Now, I want you to think about that picture because I think that picture is very similar to what many Christians face when it comes to this command that Jesus has given us, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Mentally, if you have been in church very long, you know this is something I need to do. I need to make disciples. I need to help people that don't know Jesus to know Jesus. I need to help people that do know Jesus to grow in Jesus. I need to do this. Maybe even you see others that are doing and you think, well, they look joyful. I want to do this. But when you get to the edge of the waters, it looks too overwhelming. You say, who am I to make disciples of the nations? This is too big. It's too risky. If I jump all in in a life of making disciples, I'm bound to drown. I can't do this. It's for this reason that we are entering into this sermon series together. Because I, in this sermon series, want to help you to see two things. Number one, I want you to understand fully with your heart that Jesus, who promises to be with you and empower you for the task, is greater than every fear you have about making disciples. He is greater. He's stronger. He's more powerful than you can ever imagine. But number two, I want to break this idea of disciple-making down where at the end of this sermon series, you can say, no, I can do this. I am a disciple maker. My prayer for each one of you this week and in these weeks leading up to this sermon series has that been that you will begin to get your feet wet. That you'll get in the first step, and then you'll get in the shallow, and eventually you'll find yourself swimming the stream of disciple making, finding that there is greater joy in that than any other thing that you could do in your life. That's my goal and my prayer. With that in mind, I've tried in this sermon series to give you some key definitions, ask some basic questions, and give you a key definition. So the first thing that we looked at was this. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? And we said this. A disciple is a forgiven sinner who is following Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is joined in the mission of Jesus. The very most basic question you have to ask yourself, because you can't be a disciple maker if you're not a disciple, is this. Am I a forgiven sinner? who is following Jesus, is being changed by Jesus. My character, my, my behavior, these things are changing, and I'm joined in the mission of Jesus. That is what a disciple is. From there, we ask this question, what is disciple-making then? Disciple-making is the process of helping a person move one step closer to Jesus. One step closer to Jesus. So if they don't know Jesus, it's the process of helping them to know who Jesus is and what he's done, the process of helping them to understand what it means to trust in him and repent of your sin and turn to him in faith. If they do know Jesus, it's helping them take one step further in intimacy with Jesus and commitment and surrender to him. One step forward. So today, what I want us to do is to take a next step. Because already we've said all of us are disciple makers, right? We are all called to do this work of making disciples. It's not just the calling of a pastor or a missionary. It's the calling of every Christian. It's the calling of you in this room who are doctors, you in the room who are teachers. It's the calling of those of you in this room that are senior adults. It's the calling of every youth in this room that is a follower of Jesus. This is the calling of all of us. So with that question, I want to ask this. How then do we make disciples? We know we're supposed to do it. We're all called to do it. We know what a disciple is. We know what this process is. But what does it look like tangibly to help people move one step closer to Jesus? 
In the New Testament, you see a consistent picture of how this plays out, and we get a snapshot of this by reading the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, I'm not going to do that this morning. I would encourage you this week, go to 1 Thessalonians. In fact, go to any of Paul's letters that he wrote to any of the churches. You could take Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians. Read any of them. This same theme is going to be present in every single letter that he writes. Now, as we move into this letter, it's very easy for some to think, well, this book is irrelevant. What could it tell us about making disciples in modern culture? We live in San Francisco. It's different here than it was then. Let me just remind you that when Paul wrote this letter, Thessalonica was a leading gateway city in the world. It was one of the greatest, most influential cities of that time. It was, on the Mesota- uh, it was right on the edge of the Aegean Sea. It had a natural harbor that was the best natural harbor on the entire coast. It was right in the middle of what was called the Via Ignatia, which was the major Roman east-west highway. So, so this was a place that, because of its location, had multitudes of diversity. Different kinds of people, different kinds of religion, commerce, entertainment. This was the entertainment capital of this entire region, a secular city. So I want you to think about this. Paul is making disciples in a diverse, religiously pluralistic, coastal gateway city. Does that sound familiar to any of you in this room? Very San Francisco-like. So we have to ask the question, how did he make disciples in that kind of culture? Well, there's three P's that I want us to talk about today. And I really want these three P's to kind of be a driving focus in the life of our church. Uh, You saw them in the declaration, but we're going to talk about each one of them today. The first and foremost, what's the first step you need to do if you want to make disciples? Number one, we must prayerfully depend on the Spirit. We must prayerfully depend on the Spirit. The most foundational starting point in our thinking about disciple-making is that we cannot make disciples on our own. We can't do it. It does not matter how spiritually mature any of you in this room are. None of you can take somebody and rescue them from their sin, rescue them from the domain of darkness, and transfer them into the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus Christ. None of you can do that. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are, you cannot help someone grow in their walk with Jesus. You can't help them to surrender more. You can't change someone's heart. But you know who can? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. He does what we cannot do. And it's for this reason that the Great Commission, when Jesus tells us to go and make disciples, that statement is sandwiched in between two other statements where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then at the very end, what does he say? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He has the power to make disciples. What this means is if we are to make disciples, it starts with a life that is always increasing in dependence on God's Spirit to lead and empower us. It's a life that is always increasing in dependence on God to work in the lives of the people that we're trying to help move one step closer to Jesus. The work of the Spirit is displayed throughout the New Testament, including here in 1 Thessalonians. If you would, read with me in verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says these words, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
What's Paul saying? He's saying, I had nothing to do with those things. I know you are a Christian because the work of the Holy Spirit is evident in your heart. The work of the Holy Spirit in conviction. The work of the Holy Spirit in convincing you that the message that we brought you was true. The Spirit was the one that convicted and brought change in their lives. We see this again in Paul's letter to the the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians. Some of these early Christians were getting confused. They were arguing with one another. Some of them were saying, you know what, Paul is the reason that I've grown. Others were saying, no, 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 Apollos is the reason that we've grown. They're They're the reason. And Paul says, church, you're missing the point. It's not about either one of us. It's going to be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 3. He says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul understands a very important principle. And that is this, while we are invited by Jesus to be part of this disciple-making mission, we're invited to see where God is at work and to join him in that work. Only he brings growth. Only God can change hearts. The work of His Spirit is always on display anytime you see a person take one step closer to Jesus. You look at the New Testament, it provides all of these different steps that the Spirit does. John 16 says that God convicts us of sin. How? By His Spirit. Titus 3 says that our hearts are renewed and regenerated so that we can grasp the message of salvation. How? By his Spirit. Romans 8 tells us that God enables us to battle sin by his Spirit. Galatians 5 says that God brings forth the fruit of righteousness, of kindness and peace and joy and self-control. How? By his Spirit. John 14 says that God illuminates truth in our minds by his Spirit. Luke 12 tells us that God strengthens us to boldly be witnesses for his kingdom by his spirit. These verses only scratch the surface, but church, do you get the point? It is the spirit of God within us and in working in the lives of others that is the ultimate root of all disciple making. And it's for this reason that the very first step we must take is to constantly grow in our humble dependence on the spirit to work in our lives. See, this truth begs this question, and it's a question I really want you to dive into this morning. How's your prayer life? Today, how is your prayer life? Does your prayer life represent a heart that is humbly dependent for everything by the Spirit of God? How's your prayer life? There's a stunning moment in the book of Exodus where God tells Moses to go into the land. It's the promised land, the land that they had been waiting for, the land that they had been traveling to. And God says, Moses, because the people had sinned, God says, Moses, I want you to go into the land, and here's the thing. You are going to be victorious. Your enemies are going to be driven out. You're going to have the land of milk and honey. You're going to get to enjoy it. You get all those things, but there's one caveat. 
I'm not going to go with you. My presence is not going to go before you. You're going to get all of those things, but I will not be with you. I wonder how many of you in this room would take that deal. That God is going to give you a successful career. That he's going to give you kids that are really smart, that go on to become doctors. That he's going to give you financial security. That, that he's going to make your life so enjoyable that you're going to have good health, but it will be totally absent of the Spirit's leading and presence and power in your life. Moses, when God gave him this offer, he didn't even give it a moment's notice. He said, Lord, if you are not before me, if you are not with me, if your power and your leadership is not in my life, I can't go a step. I'm not going to take one step without you. Church family, oh, that we would have that same desperation for the Spirit of God's leadership in our life. That we would be desperate for Him. My prayer for you in this room is that every single day it would start with this cry, Holy Spirit, would you lead me and guide me and empower me to make you and your kingdom the priority of my life. You need to understand this, church. A prayerless life will always equal a non-disciple-making life. Because it's absent of the power of God. It's absent of his leading. If you're taking notes, I just ask you to write down this key principle. It's one that I'm going to put in front of you over and over again. God cannot do through you what he is not first doing in you. God cannot do through you what he is not first doing in you. And so it's for this reason that I, I'm praying that we would be a people who say every day, Holy Spirit, lead me. As I'm going into this business meeting that I'm leaving, would you lead this, lead me, guide me so that this meeting brings glory to you? As I'm going into this interaction with my child about his questions, would you lead me and guide me, work in my child's heart? As I'm going to hang out with this friend who doesn't even know there's a God and yet their life is broken, they see that. Would you give me the words to say? Would you work in their heart? Lives that are completely hopeless if the presence of God is not with us, if his leadership is not at the core of who we are. This kind of total dependence is what brings about a life of disciple-making. And this is the reason that we're doing this whole Seek First prayer initiative as a church. I just want to encourage you, the whole goal of this first seek prayer, month of prayer and fasting, is that you would get into the presence of God. That instead of being led by your own preferences, by your own plans, you would actually listen and hear the voice of God about your life. That you would seek God for yourself personally, that you would seek God for the life of this church, that you would seek God for the life of the kingdom of God in this city and around the world. If you have not committed to being part of this, I cannot encourage you enough Pick one of these up on the way out. Sign up. Start with a baby step. 15 minutes a day. Commit to spending that time in prayer. Seeking the Lord's voice. Seeking his wisdom. Go sign up for a 15-minute time slot. I believe they've got some wristbands just to remind you during the week to pray during those times. Please join us in this month of prayer and fasting. So, number one, what's the first step? Prayerful dependence on the Spirit. What that does is it creates step two. And that's our second P today. What do we do? We proclaim the word. If you want to make disciples, we proclaim the word. Where the spirit is at work in making disciples, the action you are going to see most when it comes to us is the speaking 
of the truth of the word of God. It's talking about the things of God. You see this as an example in the early church. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. It says, And when they had prayed, they were committing themselves to prayer. The place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Where the Spirit is active, what you're going to see is a bold speaking about the things of God. The result of this was a Spirit-empowered movement of God. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, if you go back to our text for today, go to chapter 2. And I want you to look at verse 2 with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. I want you to see what Paul did to help make disciples. Verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. Go down to verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. How? That we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. Now go down to verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. I love this. Which is at work in you believers. What you're going to find throughout the New Testament from Paul and Peter and James and all of the other earliest disciples is that the one thing that they did most was speak about the word of God. They gave people the gospel. They were constantly looking for opportunities to, in every conversation, share something about who God is or what he had done in their lives. All of this, of course, culminates in the gospel message. This incredibly, unbelievably good news that Jesus died on the cross in our place. That God had sent his only son to come and to take the punishment for sin that we deserved. And by doing so, he was resurrected which means we too, if we're forgiven, can have eternal life in him. We can have a relationship with him that changes us from the inside out. They shared this news everywhere they went, both with Christians and non-Christians. I think it's easy for us who have been in the church for a while to think, you know what? There's two separate words, one for non-Christians and one for Christians. The gospel is for non-Christians, and then we got to come up with something new for Christians. No, God has given us one word. And we continually declare that word because it's this word that saves us and it's this word that transforms us. You see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul says these words, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, it's talking about the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Did you get that? It's the same word, the same word that makes them wise for salvation. The understanding of the gospel message is the same word that corrects and reproofs and trains for righteousness. We're not giving two different words. This is one word. 
Another pastor, J.D. Greer, says it this way, the gospel is not just the diving board of which we jump into Christianity, it is the pool itself. It's not only the way that we begin in Christ, it is the way we grow in Christ as well. And church, here's what this means. It means that the best thing that you can do to help someone take one step closer to Jesus is to proclaim his spirit-empowered word. I realize when I say proclaim the word that some of you are like, okay, now this is where it gets hard. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a preacher. I'm not going door-to-door witnessing. I, I'm not a proclaimer of God's word. That's for professionals. What I want you to see is that you don't have to be a professional to be a proclaimer. God has given us all different giftings. Not all of you in this room are called to preach, but all of you in this room are called to proclaim. And here's the thing. When you proclaim, all you're doing is taking a truth of God's word. Sometimes it's with the Bible open. Sometimes it's not. But you're taking God's word and you're infusing it into different conversations that you're having. You say, what what does this look like? Well, there are many ways this could look like. Number one, it could be you in your car answering your questions your kids have about faith. It happens during lunch today where instead of talking about meaningless things, you mention one thing about how this sermon impacted your life, what you're going to do about it. It can look like two friends meeting at a coffee shop to study God's word. It can look like you praying with your non-Christian neighbor about some aspect of their life. It can look like two friends or a group of friends getting together to hold each other accountable about their Christian faith. It can look like a husband and wife reading the Bible together before they go to bed. It can look like those of you who are older in this room, you say, I can't get out anymore. I can't really do much. It can look like you writing notes of encouragement to others in this body, making phone calls. You see, there is no age restriction when it comes to disciple making. I think of my life, one of the greatest disciple makers I have ever known was a 90-year-old man in the church that I was growing up in named Charles Polston. Charles was a man that everybody in the church called Papaw. It's a fun name in Arkansas. A lot of people go by it, but he was Papaw to our entire church. And here's what he would do. Every day, he would pick 10 to 20 people in our church, and he would pray for them by name, and he'd think about them, and he'd call each one of them. He'd say, hey, here's the verse that God wanted me to encourage you with today. Now, is there anything I can pray for you? Ten people, at least every day, that he called and shared a verse. I will tell you this, not one time did he call and share a verse that I didn't desperately need that verse that day. He helped me move constantly one step closer to Jesus. He was a disciple maker. On the other end, we have a a child in our church, she's an elementary age student, who sent in a prayer request for our staff team. And she said, I am going to do a Bible study during recess, and I want you to pray for it because none of my friends want to come at this point. I thought that was awesome. One of our elementary age students loves Jesus, and she wants to share with her friends. Even when they weren't coming, she's like, pray for me. It's pretty amazing. There's no age restriction when it comes to making disciples. We may all have different giftings. Some of you may be gifted in striking up conversations with, with newcomers, with, with people you don't know. Some of you may be gifted in writing letters of encouragement. Some of you may be gifted in hospitality. Some of you may be gifted in teaching kids or youth. It doesn't matter. All those gifts are beneficial. The question is this. Are you using whatever God has given you to proclaim his word, however and to whomever God puts in your path? Are you seeking in every conversation to make him and his kingdom a priority in that conversation? 
We are called to be proclaimers of the word of God. You do not have to be a professional or a scholar to be a proclaimer, but you do, friends, have to be in his word. Again, God cannot do through you what he has at first not done in you. You have to be in the word to have something to proclaim. I encourage you in this step. Finally, we get to the third P. And this is one that really is kind of infused in the whole process, and that's this. What do we do? We prayerfully depend on the Spirit. We proclaim the Word of God. We persevere. We persevere. Acts 2.42, talking about the early church, it says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the Word of God, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It says they devoted themselves. What that means is this. This was not a one-time occurrence. It wasn't a, hey, let's just pray for this one time and then everything's going to be good. It wasn't just, hey, let's read the word one time and then things are going to be good. No, they were devoted. The work of disciple-making takes time. This is a problem for many of us because we live in a world of instant results. You want clean water? You turn on a faucet. You need new batteries? Amazon shows up with two-hour delivery. You, you want relief for your headache, fast-acting results, right? We live in a world where we get instant results, and the problem is we take that thinking and we move it into our thinking about disciple-making. Think, well, this shouldn't be that hard. I should do these things, and then this person's going to come to know Christ, and then they're going to grow in their faith, and this is just going to be awesome. It's going to be easy. Look at your own life. Look at your own walk with God. Is it an automatic changeover? No. Disciple-making takes time. The reality is, we're all sinners. We're going to continue to struggle with sin. We're going to continue to battle with sin. We're going to experience anxiety. We're going to experience suffering. All of these things are true. And that's why this work of disciple-making takes perseverance. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 2, look at verse 8. Paul says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. I love that. Paul's like, I know this isn't just about teaching. I've got to share with you my whole life, which is very hard, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Friends, does that sound easy? Look at those words. We labored. We toiled, we worked night and day so that you could be, uh, so we could proclaim the gospel to you. We gave up our very lives. There's another passage in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, I believe. Let me turn there. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, where Paul is talking about this work of disciple making, how we as Christians have the gospel. And he says this. But we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay ourselves to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies." For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 12 is awesome. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I don't know of any better summary statement of disciple-making. I am going to die to myself so that you can grow spiritually. 
Friends, that takes perseverance. This is work. This is a pouring out of our lives on behalf of other people. People do not become a Christian in an instant. It usually takes time. Sometimes it does happen. Or you, you share the gospel, people are ready, and then boom, they, they're ready. Let's follow Christ. But other times it takes time of them seeing and watching your life and hearing the gospel message. And then when they do, it takes time for them to grow and to, to have victory over sin and grow in the fruits of the Spirit. It takes time. Which means this, we have to keep praying. We have to be dependent on the Spirit daily. We have to keep proclaiming. We have to keep persevering. Disciple-making requires that we not give up on people even when it seems like nothing is happening. I want to end with this. One thing you constantly find about disciple-making is that Jesus regularly references this picture of sowing seeds. Have you ever thought about this? When a farmer goes out and sows seeds, can they see what's happening underneath the surface? No. If, if they, after day one, they sow and they come and they, they look at the surface and they're like, man, this isn't growing, I forget this, and they walk away, they never water, they never do any more work, what's going to happen? The harvest is going to be none. Nothing's going to grow. Just because they couldn't see what's underneath the surface. But the farmer that comes out daily, and even though he can't see what's going on, he waters and he sows, and he works the seeds. He pulls the weeds daily after day after day. He does that. Eventually, what happens? There's a sprout, and then it grows, and all of a sudden, over time and over lots of work, you see a harvest. Church, I cannot encourage you enough. Don't give up on people. It doesn't matter if they're not Christians or they're Christians that aren't growing. They may be stagnant. They may be stuck. Don't give up. We keep praying. We keep asking God, only you can give the growth. Would you please do something in their heart? We keep proclaiming. We keep sowing. We keep working. And over time, what are we going to see? We're going to see a harvest. Maybe different than what we think, but we're going to see God do something. Too many of us give up on the task because it's hard. It's frustrating. But God calls us to persevere. This morning, I want you to understand very clearly what your calling is. Each one of you in this room is called to continually help others take one step closer to Jesus through these three, three Ps. Prayerful dependence on the Spirit. Proclaim the Word. Persevere. This morning, I want to just end with this question. Do these three actions characterize your life in Christ? Are you prayerfully dependent on the Spirit? Are you proclaiming His Word? Are you persevering? Who has God put in your path that you can be praying for today? Who has God put in your path that you can be proclaiming to? Maybe it's just one conversation. Maybe it's a long string of conversations, but who is on your heart today? I want to encourage you to take a step into these three actions to this week. Number one, spend some time in prayer. Again, we're doing this seek first, 15 minutes a day. Sign up for a prayer slot. Commit to that. Spend time listening to the voice of God. Proclaim the word. Have one conversation this week. Just one. Take a step. Persevere. I believe that as you take these steps, you'll find that there is an unbelievable amount of joy when we begin to swim on this stream of disciple-making. Let's pray together. This morning, we want to just give you the opportunity to do exactly what I just talked about. Over these next few moments, we're just going to, Joel's going to come and he's going to play, but we want you to have some time just to spend in prayer. 
more than singing or thinking about what you're going to do after the service, would you just take these next few moments and say, Lord, would you please speak to me? Lord, show me the areas of my life where I am not dependent on you. Lord, show me the people that I'm called to proclaim your truth to. Lord, show me the people that I've given up on. Help me to persevere. We know that you have busy weeks, lots of noise in life. And so we want to give you this moment to spend some time listening to the voice of God. So would you listen and would you respond? For those of you that don't know Jesus personally, you've never come to know Christ, let me just encourage you today. That first step for you is becoming a disciple. Becoming a person that surrenders your life to Jesus. I'm just telling you, he has done everything needed for your salvation. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. He died on the cross for you so that you could be forgiven of your sins, so that you could have eternal life, relationship with him. But it starts with you turning from your sin and trusting in what he's accomplished for you. Would you put your faith in him today? I'd love to talk to you if that's you this morning. You can find me or find another pastor here after the service. We'll give you this time. I'll come and close us in just a moment. Listen to the voice of God.